This is a special joint presentation by WNXP and WPLN, Nashville Public Radio. Interesting story about that. Uh, living on Jefferson Street, we had a porch, like my front porch here now. And it, was, it was a long uh, kind of porch, and we would sit down on the porch. You know. It's a Friday morning in July, and I'm sitting across the dining table from Edward Kendall, a storehouse of Jefferson Street memories. The story goes, and I talked a little story about that time. A little interesting story about her. Got a super interesting story about him. My sister's boyfriend. That's the story. Once Kendall gets going, I'm not about to interrupt, but I was the one who brought the microphone into his house, just a couple of blocks off Jefferson. That family member loudly washing dishes in the next room. He had a big bus. Maybe by. he'd heard these before. Hold on just a minute. Hey, just hold up right now, Jack. You can, you can do it in, in a few. Then Kendall's off again. He spent most of his eight decades living and working right here as an attorney and a member of the school board and city council. And he's made it his mission to collect and share the history of his neighborhood and the black music scene that was once at the heart of it. When they were too young to get in the front door of a bar, Kendall and his friends found another way to sneak a glimpse of B.B. King's show. We used to go in the back of the club. They didn't have air conditioning. They had two great big fans, and we could look through those fans, and, you know, at the show. Nobody loves me, nobody seems to care. I said nobody loves me, nobody seems to care. Afterwards, King's bus got stuck in a creek, and his band struggled to free it. We as teenagers, you know, it was about 10 of us, maybe. We helped push the bus out of the creek. And B.B. King gave us 50 cents apiece. You know, that was like back then in the 50s. You could buy a baby roof for a nickel or a Coca-Cola cost a nickel. So, you know, we were pretty rich, you know, about 10 baby roofs. Every day, every day, every day I have the blue. Have you ever heard of a guy named Bobby Hill? Sonny. Yesterday my life was filled with rain. Yeah, Heb had quite the career, playing the spoons for Roy Acuff on the Opry in his youth, and later writing Sonny, a massive R&B and pop hit that countless other singers have recorded. Sonny, thank you, thank you for that dream that the place. I think it was 1965. My sister's boyfriend at that time, and... Bobby Hebb were good friends. Kendall's keen to share the story of a lesser-known Hebb composition, one inspired by his sister. Bobby wrote a song called Bruce Hill Do the Chicken. The chicken was a, a popular dance back then. It wasn't the funky chicken, it was just the chicken. And uh, Bruce Hill had a unique name. I mean, how many people have you heard the name Bruce Hill? So, especially locally here in Nashville. And uh, my mom and daddy found out about it. Boy, they went out to WSOK and made them take it off there. <laughs> so Bobby Hill said, now we're going to take it now. Bruce Hill do the chicken. I haven't been able to find Bobby Hebb's ode to how Kendall's sister did the chicken. And I haven't fact-checked Kendall's other tales either. Because that's not the point. But there are plenty of hard truths and verifiable facts about what happened to the Jefferson Street scene. Last week, we introduced you to Love Noise, the group that started cultivating a scene for black musical expression that filled a void in Nashville in the early 2000s. 
We're about to reckon with how that void came to be, how the city's once thriving black music scene was dismantled decades earlier. Then we'll zoom in on the aftermath. L-O-V-E, Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Julie Height, senior music writer for Nashville Public Radio, and this is Making Noise, part two of four. Five dollars, no dress code. Young, cool, college students. Free food. DJ on the soul deck. That's what Love Noise was. It's a safe space for black culture. They paved the way for what Nashville is today. Yo, peace, y'all. This is Common. It only makes sense to be at Love Noise on Sundays. Stay on it, all right? Stay in tune. Good music. Nashville Public Radio's Making Noise, the untold story of how a Sunday night party changed Nashville's live music scene. Sponsored in part by One Community, presented by the Tennessee Titans Foundation, Citizens Bank, and AT&T. The North Nashville of Kendall's youth was a hub of black commerce, education, worship, and entertainment the home of multiple HBCUs, countless churches, numerous nightclubs, and the office of the Nashville chapter of the NAACP. Resourcefulness thrived there. Segregation and redlining barred generations of black Nashvillians from living or operating businesses in other parts of the city. By the 1940s, it had a hot jazz, blues, and R&B scene right along the bustling corridor of Jefferson Street. And Edward Kendall saw it up close. I was born actually in the house at 2510 Jefferson Street on February the 5th, 1945, I think, about 2 o'clock in the morning. A full 67 years later, he quite literally wrote the book on the area. It's a detailed self-published volume called A Walk Down Historic Jefferson Street. There was just a lot of music on Jefferson Street. There was a lot of little beer joints. You had the Wigwam, which was out by Tennessee State, Price's Diner, which was right up on the campus, Club Baron, Club Zanzibar. You had the Boom Boom Room, the El Dorado, Maceo's Skating Room, Club Revelat. On, on the bigger clubs, Club Baron, uh, Del Morocco, uh, New Era Club. Now, New Era Club was located on 12th and Charlotte. Where Etta James recorded a live album. So it was a very vibrant community. Black residents who ventured out to venues that catered to whites and other parts of the city faced aggressively enforced segregation. But along Jefferson Street, Kendall remembers, they could walk to and enjoy any matinee, dinner, or after-hours show they pleased. There they could catch local favorites trying to break into the business, like Bobby Hebb, Jackie Shane, Ted Jarrett, Marion James, Charles Wig Walker, and, for a hot minute, Jimi Hendrix. Established names, too. B.B. King, Jackie Wilson, Fats Domino, James Brown, and plenty of others. When Ray Charles came through, he snatched up a Tennessee State music student for his band. The fact is, while the Grand Ole Opry and Music Row were becoming focal points for country and western dreams, Jefferson Street was incubating musical ambitions too. It was big in the sense that uh, 
it provided opportunity to a lot of young people coming along who wanted to become uh, artists. Also, it offered the community a chance to see big-time entertainers that we wouldn't normally have that opportunity. And I mean close up. You'd see them walking down Jefferson Street. That, that first-hand kind of contact, I think, was very important. But not important enough to white politicians to protect. That was a meeting here in Nashville. My understanding is in 1955, by a lot of the local white politicians and business people to discuss this interstate situation. Uh, But no blacks were invited to that meeting, as I understand. As soon as some of the city's black attorneys, educators, and elected officials learned of what was going on, they tried to fight it. They were leaders in that uh, movement to try to stop the interstate, uh, get it to go a different route. There's a strong belief now, and, and even back then, that it was purposely carried through North Nashville in the route that it took because of the civil rights activity that was going on on Jefferson Street. They filed a lawsuit, but the construction went ahead anyway. Private homes, churches, and venues were demolished to make way for the interstate. Neighborhoods were sliced apart, the streets that connected them taken away. It it really, really hampered a lot of business, because most of the businesses on Jefferson Street were supported by the community, and a lot of people walked. By cutting off some of the arteries, it, it, it made it very difficult for people to to, to move around. Kendall knows that it's a chapter of Nashville history many want to ignore. The city certainly wasn't out there documenting most of the losses, which is one of the reasons he felt it was important to write a book about it. To me, it's disappointing. Uh, when I was doing the book, I was trying to get pictures of various venues and things that had existed on Jefferson Street that were no longer there. And I went everywhere. I went to the archives, the uh, state archives, the city archives, and, you know, contacted the federal people and all. Nobody took pictures. He says he even offered up a hundred bucks to anyone who could find a photo, but nothing. You know, they tore these buildings down. I mean, I just even wanted some neighborhood pictures. But I would have thought, you know, if you're going to tear down a house, you'd take a picture of it, you know, to preserve something. You know, it wasn't important to, you know, you're tearing down black folk houses in North Nashville. That historical episode is far too familiar. Cities across the U.S. have subjected black neighborhoods to profound disruption rather than let interstate highways disturb white neighborhoods. In Nashville, the racial contrast and treatment spilled into the music industries in striking ways. The very same decade that the city and state essentially signed off on the demolition of Nashville's black music scene, one mayor, Ben West, erected signs along the highways that officially declared Nashville the home of the Grand Ole Opry, Music City, USA. Nashville, Tennessee, the country music capital of the world, the Grand Ole Opry. And the next mayor, Beverly Briley, who was initially named in the lawsuit over the path of the interstate, announced that the city would donate land on Music Row for the construction of the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. Racial segregation didn't just govern physical spaces, it was also imposed on musical genres. 
the country music industry was seen as a white domain, divided along racial lines from the beginning. Talent scouts had simply decided at the dawn of commercial recording that black string bands had no business in the hillbilly market. One of the Opry's first stars, the black harmonica virtuoso D. Ford Bailey, was treated as an exotic outlier. And by the time the Jefferson Street scene went quiet, Nashville was well on its way to embracing the popularity, historical significance, and economic impact of country music as its civic brand. And that was more or less how it was, right up until Love Noise got going in 2003. And the landscape for the city was basically two fronts. You had country music honky-tonks always, for sure. And you had rock rooms. You didn't really have any black music spaces. Eric Holt remembers well what it was like for black performers working in contemporary styles like hip-hop and R&B. Beyond some very small, old-school R&B places, but those places were really hardcore blues or hardcore what I call old school R&B. The average age in those places was 50 years old or something like that. So it wasn't like they would allow a rapper come in and do it. There were not a lot of opportunities or a lot of space. So typically what we'd have to do if we did something, we'd have to make our own space. In the early 2000s, Holt and his fellow Love Noise founders were fairly new to putting on events, but savvy enough to learn from what was already working in Nashville. Holt saw the usefulness in studying a couple of country-oriented showcases that were institutions in the city. One was the Bluebird Cafe, folksy but famous home to writer's rounds. When I was 14, I was falling fast for a blue-eyed girl in my homeroom class. Securing spots in those rounds said something about songwriters' reputations, namely that they were legit. So Holt started comparing the curated open mics of the Love Noise Sunday night to the Bluebird. Like the Bluebird, we were a platform for black art. Most of the people that played Love Noise the first decade were local, unsigned talent. And uh, very much like the Bluebird, our stage was respected. He also noted the promotion approach of Billy Block's Western Beat, a weekly show that drew industry attention to emerging alt-country acts. Reading the newspaper back then, I always saw these ads for this artist, uh, Billy Block. He was a well-known country curator and talent. I've been a big fan of this guy's for years. He's been on Western Beat a number of times. He's got all the, everything you need to make it in the music business. I always saw a radio station promoting Billy Block and Nashville scene supporting his open mics. I was like, how did he get the radio station to support this? How did he get Nashville scene to be a, a sponsor? So I just called the number on the ad and I said, hey, would you be willing to have lunch with me? I want to ask you some questions. He said, sure. I bought him lunch and Billy Block told me how he got that deal done. The key, Holt learned, was cross-promotion for free. So he followed suit, working out an arrangement where the alt-weekly The Nashville Scene would run ads announcing each lineup. The other piece of the puzzle was partnering with the adult R&B radio station 92Q to create the Love Noise Radio My name is Kenny Smooth. I'm the uh, program director for 92Q and, um, and now vice president of Urban Formats for Cumulus Media. Wake up in the morning. 
on it. He's on the go. You got Stevie. Keep it easy. You'll be laughing. Kenny first heard about Love Noise as he drove into Nashville to take his new position at the station on a Sunday in 2005. One of the talents that was on the air in Fiona, and I heard her doing her thing. He called in just like any other listener, not identifying himself as the new boss. Hey, you know, what's going on tonight? Well, there's this thing, Love Noise, and you can go and check that out. So I was like, cool, I think I'll go check it out. So I go down there. And when I saw the vibe that they were building, I was like, this. Immediately I saw the possibility, you know, and knew that they should get a, a show and we were going to tap into the Sunday show because it was kind of already in this groovy neo-soul vibe. 92Q and Love Noise had no trouble hashing out a plan for the Love Noise radio hour. Within weeks, it was on the air and on its way to becoming a popular Sunday night radio show. Local artists were especially into it. Now they could talk up their latest releases and promote their performances before hitting the Love Noise stage that night. In the studio right now we have Diablo, a.k.a. Super. Super in the building, Cash Bill, was good? All right, Super, what you been up to? We've been trying to get this super bad ready for the streets, by the way, that is the name of the next LP. Yes, know that right now. Streets. Yeah, turn this thing up, let's go. I'm gonna keep it about that bank, Calling in, enjoy spreading the love. Now I'm trying to get that thing cracking, baby. I really do appreciate the love. I think you're a very great artist, and I look forward to seeing you tonight at um, Love Noise. That's what's up, Joy. We'll be in the building. I'll be looking for you. People, man, that just wanted to uh, to be a part of it, you know, and that's what was the main question. How do I how do I get on? How do I get onto this thing y'all doing on the air? So Love Noise was getting established. Holt and his crew were shrewd enough to see how business was done in Nashville. They developed their own strategies, forged their own partnerships. Sometimes they worked out corporate sponsorships with companies like Cricket Mobile, Scion, and Red Bull that wanted to promote their products to young professionals of color. But it was up to the people who showed up week after week, a lot of them both avid audience members and musicians, to help shape the Love Noise experience. I'm Julie Height, and this is Making Noise, a collaborative series from WPLN and WNXP. Hey, everybody. We are throwing a Sunday night party. For this podcast, and you are invited. We're doing it March 3rd at Analog inside the Hutton Hotel. There's going to be music, some voices from the show, the founders, key figures of Love Noise, and of course, senior music writer Julie Height live and on the stage. It's going to be an awesome way to get together with people who love supporting local music and the work of Nashville Public Radio. You can find tickets at wpln.org slash making noise. Nashville Public Radio's Making Noise, the untold story of how a Sunday night party changed Nashville's live music scene, is sponsored in part by One Community, presented by the Tennessee Titans Foundation. Creating generational change, one person, one family, one community at a time, by giving all their energy to inspiring a positive and tangible impact through programs and partnerships. AT&T driven by their conviction that connecting changes everything and actively working to help communities thrive in today's digital world. Learn more at att.com slash connected learning. 
and Citizens Bank, a community-minded, purpose-driven financial institution celebrating 120 years of empowering individuals, families, nonprofits, and small businesses to fulfill their financial goals. Learn more at bankcbn.com. Eric Holt didn't have to look far for musicians. His own brothers, Rick and Elijah, better known as Dee Dee, had an improvisational hip-hop group called Audiophonics, and they became the de facto Love Noise house band. Early on, Love Noise left its initial home in the basement of B.B. King's and moved the Sunday night gatherings to a spot called the Bar Car in a former warehouse. I asked Dee Dee and Rick to meet me there. Was it here or here? Maybe it was here. Because that says stairs, so it couldn't have been that. Must have been here, man. But this is definitely the hallway. Since the bar car is long gone, we looked for its old doorway among the offices and restaurants that now fill the complex. When you walked in uh, the south entrance here, a straight walk back, and you were walking into the bar car. It looks like the bar. <laughs> Dee Dee played keyboard and drums on gospel tours. And back in those days, Rick was establishing himself as a sharp MC and producer under the name Crisis. But in philosophy and practice, Audiophonics was the antithesis of any work the members of its evolving lineup would ever do in the music industry. The band's songs had no set structure. They were funky, atmospheric works of alchemy that took shape on the spot. And they were meant to be ephemeral. You're only hearing them because Love Noise liked to videotape everything. Audiophonics is just a very different experience than any planned, uh, rehearsed uh, set because it wasn't that at all. And you could tell. But quality was so high that it's like, I can tell that this isn't, you know, packaged, but like, are they really just, you know, making this up? Yeah, y'all give it up for the band. Sonny O'Connor's, y'all. It don't get no better. Best of the best. To me, this was the coolest shit ever. They recruited a young bassist named Kyle Whalem, who'd watched his jazz saxophonist father, Kirk Whalem, accompany massive mainstream stars. Whitney Houston, for one. Kyle felt like what Audiophonics did on Sunday nights was a whole new thing for Nashville. This was like, okay, all of a sudden it wasn't just country and Christian and some jazz. We had legitimate hip-hop and R&B and neo-soul with cutting-edge talent. I felt really proud. I just felt like it was so cool that we had our flavor of organic black music coming out of Nashville of, of the time. That's the important distinction. We all like vibed it into existence. Kyle was just kicking off his career, but the experience was just as exhilarating for a veteran musician like Dee Dee. The guys in the band, like we used to talk about where the excitement came from, not only being able to get together and play, you just let your hair down <laughs> uh, and just be you in the context of what was happening. But there was enough space to where each individual identity as a musician, each character, was able to really showcase in all of its authenticity. Audiophonics helped set the tone of freewheeling expression at Love Noise. 
but a lot of voices would come to define that first generation of performers. Those musicians found their footing and their people through Love Noise. Plenty of them carved out careers with twin priorities. They became the consummate professional collaborators, hired for tours and sessions inside the Nashville system. And they embraced the opportunity to make their own music outside of it. Good music never dies. It will always be alive and well in the hearts Jason Eskridge came to Nashville as a singer for hire on gospel, contemporary Christian, and country gigs. But he was looking for something else, a space where spiritual yearning met social consciousness, sensuality, and neo-soul feeling. A space like Love Noise. I would typically be singing at church Sunday morning, definitely fulfilled, but not totally fulfilled musically. It was kind of like, okay, I'll do church Sunday morning and then go get some more church Sunday night. Different type of church, different type of musical community. And I think that's just wanting to be someone who played music that was, you know, still positive and still about love and still about the goodness of the world without it necessarily being church music or gospel music. On Sunday nights, Eskridge got to stretch out as a singer-songwriter and song interpreter, a performer who could be patient and poignant, powerfully explosive, and a lot of things in between. Love Noise wasn't this place where you ever felt judged or like like you're on on the Apollo or something, and their default is to boo. Um, like here at, or at Love Noise, the default always felt like Hey, we're here with you. Creating places like that where artists feel safe to like kind of be themselves and and not feel like they have to like create some more widely acceptable version of themselves for for people to to dig what they're doing is it's important to have those spaces talking about sweet love sweet love experiencing the affirmation was one thing but Eskridge also saw the message it sent to the entire city when love noise kept going strong week after week year after year I think love noise created a room in town where people could consistently see that black music can work in Nashville and get the locals out to enjoy local music. Mike Hicks was a Love Noise regular who didn't begin performing right away. He worked up to it. He was thinking of the big picture, like the kind of reputation he wanted to earn. Whoever it was, it was always of the highest quality. I knew that if I ever got up, I didn't want to drop the ball and misrepresent myself <laughs> or the rest of the community here. And um, we were all trying to garner a certain respect for Nashville soul outside of Nashville. I didn't want to be the weakest link, you know. 
They sang songs to help gain freedom, and now we act like we don't need them. They sang songs about injustice, but now we sing to please the public. Hicks stirred people up with that impassioned message and vocal run. Eventually, Love Noise began booking him to do that on stages all over town. Hicks got musical training in church and at college, but he's absolutely clear on this. Leading his band at Love Noise events taught him the rest of what he needed to know to play keyboard for Little Big Town, Kev Moe, Lauren Daigle, and a slew of other Nashville touring acts. I learned how to be a musical director. I learned how to, to be an actual touring musician from watching and playing these opportunities. And without that, I don't know that my career would be what it has been. There's no black music scene. There's no soul music scene, especially for original music and artists here in town without Love Noise. Hicks also relied on Love Noise to bring in his favorite neo-soul voices from all over. He wanted them to book P.J. Morton so badly that he intervened, hooked Morton's manager up with Eric Holt. Since the bar car only held a couple hundred people and lacked a proper stage, Hicks remembers coming to the realization that Love Noise was bound to outgrow it. For the acts that they are starting to be able to pull in, this space is not going to suffice. That's where we're headed next week. For Love Noise to really have an impact in the city's live landscape, it would need to branch out, get into larger venues, draw the big names, and grow with a booming city. You can catch episode three of Making Noise and all four parts of this special podcast from WPLN and WNXP over the next two Thursdays. Making Noise is a production of Nashville Public Radio. You can read more stories on artists from Nashville's hip-hop and R&B scenes and share the show with your friends by going to wnxp.org forward slash making noise. I'm Julie Heights, senior music writer. This podcast would not exist if lead producer Justin Barney hadn't listened to my research and suggested with great enthusiasm that we ought to turn it into a podcast. Also absolutely essential, the editorial guidance of Tony Gonzalez. Big thanks to producer Marquise Munson and editor Latanya Turner for their contributions. Additional story consulting from Jason Moon Wilkins, Magnolia McKay, Mariba Knight, and Nicole Kemp. Fact-checking by Emily Siner. And there's a whole team that's helped with the logo, the website, the rollout, and an event we're planning for March 3rd at Analog in Nashville. Thanks to Nicole Kemp, Rachel Iacovone, Mac Limeball, and Carly Butler. 
Our music in this episode includes clips by Mississippi John Hurt, Bobby Hebb, Etta James, James Brown, Ray Charles, Flatten Scruggs, Diablo, Audiophonics, Jason Eskridge, Mike Hicks, and PJ Morton. There's also music from Blue Dot Sessions. Nashville Public Radio has big ambitions to do more in-depth journalism and special series like Making Noise, and you make this possible. I'm Tony Gonzalez, news director at WPLN, which is a community-supported public radio station. What that means is the largest share of our funding comes from local listeners who contribute. The place to do that, to give, is at wpln.org give. And when you make a donation there or become a sustaining member, let us know what you think about making noise. There's a comment field that you can fill in. And yes, we do read the comments. Thanks for listening and for supporting local independent journalism.